industry analyst and industry analysis and market research firm. You can follow him at x.com slash j3more. This show is being recorded and will be included in my podcast series called Digital Health Investor Talk. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple and Spotify. This is not investment advice, and we are not investment advisors. First off, here's the format for this show. It's 90 minutes long. John and I will spend the first half talking about the news and the macro picture and some other topics, some office cooler chat. Then we'll move on to our topic of the day, which is John's expertise on our value-based future. After that, we'll, and during, throughout that, we'll be taking call-ins from our audience. In order for you to do more than just watch, you need to register for an account on call-in. You can visit it at callin.com or the call-in social podcasting app in the App Store, register for an account, and then you can ask questions in the chat. Um, so, uh, John, I'm, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself, but first I wanted to mention that I actually got to know John's father, John Moore II, and he's the founder of Chillmark Research, and he was a noted industry analyst in software, and he told me that he chose to focus sort of the second half of his career on healthcare software because the sector is so messed up. Um, uh, and uh, he also, I wanted to have a, a memory of John Moore Sr. Uh, was that the High Tech Act came out, I, I believe, over like Christmas of 2009 or something like that. And uh, everyone was scrambling to say, what, what did this proposed legislation written by lobbyists mean? And we looked at it and it was hundreds of pages of uh, proposed bill text, which if you've ever seen it has has line numbers and it's written in sort of gobbledygook. Uh, and it, it, it was Christmas break and everyone was like, oh man, this is going to ruin my Christmas break. I need to know what it says. I don't, I don't understand it. Um, and so uh, John Moore Sr., um, started cranking out blog posts. He was literally reading the hundreds of pages of proposed law and then putting it into an analytical framework and then telling us what it meant. Um, and so it saved my Christmas vacation and I started following his work ever since then. And sadly, uh, John uh, passed away. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, so he was a, a friend. I, I went to a health with him. I went to a his talk, to a hymns with him. He was a friend, he passed away. Uh, a few months ago, um, so uh, uh, but I wanted to give I wanted to give our audience that memory of John Moore Senior. Uh, so, John uh, Moore the Third Junior on this call, um, would you like to maybe make a remark about your father uh, and then also introduce yourself, please? Um, sure. I think that the easiest way, if anybody wants to learn a little bit more about my dad and you know the, his role with Chillmark and growing the company into what it is today. You can go back to a post that we made um, kind of in memoriam to him back in, I believe we pushed it in late July, but we did a podcast with our team, kind of talked about some of the highlights of his career uh, in health, but you know, he was an inspiration, obviously. He, I worked with him for a number of years. He was my father and it was how I got into healthcare IT. You know, when I initially was making my transition from being a bench scientist, I did everything I could to avoid ending up working for my father. I really did not want to go down that path. But through a series of just kind of fortuitous or serendipitous events, I decided to create a startup in mental health space that was a healthcare IT play using 
text messaging to create a daily log for people that are going through treatment to better understand what aspects of their treatment are actually creating impact on their condition. And, you know, he was part of the inspiration for that, but it was also seeing my mother go through psychiatric treatment my whole life and just some of the patterns that if they had been recognized sooner would have been really helpful for her treatment. Um, and so I kind of inadvertently got into health IT. And as I was doing my startup, I decided that, you know, the best way to pay the bills was to apply the market research I was already doing for my company to doing some analyst work with Chillmark. And so I was working part time with them. And that's how I made the transition and seeing how my father built up a company and really focused on always honing in the brand to be really known for objective coverage of what's happening in the space and trying to tease out what all the different signals actually mean to different stakeholders is something that I'm trying to carry the torch forward around and really maintain that objectivity and that trust that he helped to build with the company. That's great. Thank you. Um, and by the way, do you want to say a little more about what Chillmark does? Uh, I associate yeah. Chillmark with research about payers and providers, but maybe there's, I'm sure, I'm sure the story's evolved. Um, so we have always written with the provider or the end user of technology in mind, and we choose the topics that we write about based on their relative immaturity. We like going into messy areas that are newer, but we think are going to be transformational to how care is delivered and actually, you know, create new care pathways, enable new workflows in the care system. Um, but we like messy areas because we see that oftentimes some of these new technologies, you'll see multiple different companies using the same language because it's the buzzword du jour, and then they use it entirely different contexts, entirely different meanings. So we like to go in and actually create a definition, create common uh, language that people can use to actually go out and speak with vendors, speak with technology developers, or their C-suite, you know, to speak to their bosses to when they want to get something new implemented. And so we look into these areas that are kind of messy and we tease out what is table stakes for that type of technology, for that category, and then what is going to be the differentiator between the different solution vendors that people would be interested in, in you know, evaluating which is going to be the best for them. And so the people that have historically come to us for, you know, that's our syndicated research side. That's kind of what we do on our own that we self-publish. And so people come to us for the expertise we build around that research that we're doing ourselves. Um, we historically work with a lot of provider groups that are trying to commercialize something that they've developed in-house. We work with payer groups that are trying to understand the transition to value-based care and kind of what utilization management technologies there are, what kind of analytics tools they can look to implement to better understand their patient populations. Um, we work with investors to, on market diligence around whether or not uh, an investment that they're looking at is actually a viable investment long-term or if it's just you know, another clone of something already out there or if the market isn't actually as you know, ready for the, that type of an innovation as you know, that company is putting out. Um, we can do any number of projects that are based around that core research that I was just telling you about. That's great. Thank you. Um, so now I move on to our first topic, which is macro news. So the biggest macro news today is that um, the market is up, the NASDAQ is up on the yesterday's CPI print, the consumer um, price index print. So the CPI showed cooling inflation. This is a big deal because people have been very anxious about inflation and the Fed has been anxious about inflation. And uh, I would say uh, investors in digital health are very concerned that the Fed 
will hike rates further, the inflation will be out of control, and the Fed will hike rates further. And so we've had a couple prints, including this is probably the best one recently, where um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics says that the CPI uh, uh, shows cooling inflation. So specifically, the CPI was flat month on month uh, from September to October. The producer price index, uh, another measure of inflation, fell by 0.5%. So the Dow has been up, it's now at um, 14.1 thousand uh, and it's up 41% since the beginning of the year. I think at the beginning of this year, um, people were down in the dumps. Nobody would have thought that the NASDAQ would have lifted 41% since the beginning of the year. Um, uh, and so the implication of this is that the Fed is likely not gonna raise rates further. There's no pressure on the Fed to raise rates further. The Fed has said that it may raise rates one more time before the end of the year. Everyone thinks that means 25 basis points. Um, uh, and then, you know, at the start of the new year, the Fed has not has not given any guidance about the new year. But if inflation, the only reason the Fed would raise rates is to control inflation and inflation seems to be coming in cool. So uh, the first implication of this is that uh, there's less uncertainty for VCs who are investing in digital health. That's great news. Um, the next is that uh, is that um, the bond markets are actually predicting the Fed may lower rates. Um, so uh, if the Fed thinks there's going to be a recession coming, it might lower rates. If the U.S. Treasury is having trouble paying interest payments at the new higher rate, the Fed may want to lower rates. So bond markets are already suggesting that the Fed may lower rates and lower rates would mean rising valuations at sale for digital health companies uh, and that sort of thing. So. So this is this is good news all around. Um, uh, so, um, John, any any thoughts on the Fed's print and inflation and interest rates? Um, I think that what you just said wraps it up pretty nice and neatly. I think that we've seen a significant cooling of investment and dollars going into innovation projects because of just money getting more expensive. Money was basically free for a decade after the 2008 collapse. Um, and we're actually seeing interest rates going up for the first time since that period, like substantially. So I think that the Fed slowing down on that and kind of starting to table any new uh, increases is going to be good for our world. That's great. Um, so another bit of, uh, and, and so for the innovation community, uh, we really enjoyed nearly zero risk-free rates, you know, since 2008 to nine, that was, that was great for the innovation community in terms of getting an entrance of capital, talent, new products, new companies, into the sector, we will probably never quite see the rates that low again, I don't think. Um, but uh, we we have seen a dramatic decrease of investment in the sector with higher rates. And I think we hope for lower rates um, to sort of return some of that investment level to normal. And, and we're in the unusual position that VCs have dry powder, they have raised funds, they have commitments to put it to work. And they're, and so they're not, they're investing it at much lower rates. So um, uh, lead, lead investors are not leading right now. And, we're, and, and if you ask them why, they would say there's too much uncertainty. Um, and so we're looking for the economy to give us some more certainty. So um, the next yep. is, so Moody's um, is the only rating agency that still rates the US government at AAA. And Moody's has announced this week that it is cutting its outlook 
on the U.S. credit rating. Um, uh, and uh, so this is almost certainly due to things like high spending, you know, uh, emergency spending packages going out to pay for war um, uh, and uh, higher rates causing interest rate payments to increase. Um, and so uh, Moody's has, has said it's it's cutting its outlook on um, U.S. credit from negative uh, to, to negative, which means that in the future, they may actually cut the rating from AAA to AA, for example. Um, and it said specifically, it cited high interest rates and doubts about the government's ability to implement effective fiscal policies. Um, the other ratings agencies have already downgraded the US government. So I remember growing up, I never thought that the US government would have anything less than AAA. Now it seems to have, um, you know, pretty much every agency is saying it's headed in the direction of, of AA. Um, and this is, uh, so in general, this is really bad news uh, for the innovation economy um, because we, we want kind of the government to take care of itself, be stable and predictable. Um, and, um, uh, and instead we have a diminished credit rating for the U.S. government. That also means that the government's going to have to spend more of the budget on uh on higher interest rates on its debt because its debt is no longer as safe. Um, and it, it means that the, the bond agency is, is predicting a kind of a gridlock and ineffective federal government that spends a lot and that doesn't, uh, that doesn't have enough income to pay for what it spends as well. So not good, um, uh, but there's an intriguing direct effect and indirect effect here. So it turns out that all over the world, Every government on earth, nearly every government, every industrialized country government has the same problem. Japan's situation is worse. Overall, Europe's situation is worse. So the direct effect is people are less willing to invest in the US because the future prospects are not as good as they were as future prospects were in the past. The indirect effect actually is that people all over the world want to increase their allocation to the US. So if you're a car dealer family in Thailand, you may want to increase your amount of investment to the U.S. If you're a German pension fund, you may want to increase your allocation to the U.S. If you're a Gulf uh, sovereign wealth fund, you might want to increase your allocation to the U.S. If you're a Japanese pension fund, you might want to increase your allocation to the U.S. because the whole world has the same problem, only it's typically worse than the U.S. So on a relative basis, the U.S. remains more attractive. So John, any thoughts on, on uh, you know, that Moody's cutting the... Um, uh, the, the, or uh, being negative on the outlook for U.S. bonds? I've always thought that the credit rating agencies rating governments seemed a little bit silly personally, but I get that it does play into financial markets. And I'm honestly, I mean, it's not a great look for us, but I think it's more of a reflection on what you said about the government just being ineffective and inefficient. And I think that that is more should really just be seen as a wake-up call to the legislators to get their shit together. Um, sorry if I'm not supposed to swear, I'll stop doing that. Um, they really do need to be able to actually get to some kind of a bipartisan consensus around keeping the government running effectively because I'm, I think that's really what's at play here. And it's affecting everyone. That level of uncertainty, it trickles down through the rest of the American economy. And I think that that is what we need to be more concerned about is just the ineffectiveness of the Congress right now to actually get a, um, a budget resolution passed. Yeah, thanks. Um, so the next is that we're, we're seeing the market rally a little. The NASDAQ is rallying. I think this is unexpected. It's happening specifically because that there was a CPI print that showed inflation cooling. But I think this was, this was unexpected. 
And it's, it's actually really good news for the innovation economy because the IPO window is closed. And in September, October, we saw a number of companies try to IPO, tech companies, biotech companies. And what we really needed to have happen was high quality companies go out for an IPO, their stock price go up 15% and stay up. And if that had happened, then the IPO window would have opened. Instead, it fizzled. And a lot of those companies IPO'd and their stock price went down. And now uh, other companies in the queue are choosing to not IPO. Um, so that, that could be an indefinite remaining closed of the IPO window. And we definitely want the IPO window to open up again in the innovation economy. But with the NASDAQ rallying, we could see some optimistic high quality companies push through to IPO even before the end of the year. So that's this unexpected NASDAQ rallying could have that benefit. Now, the two things we really want to have happen for the innovation economy is we want the Fed to stop raising rates. They want the IPO window to open so that so that digital health unicorns can IPO and their investors can take that money and put it back into investing in young digital health companies again. That will normalize the market and I think get VCs investing again. Um, and so there's some there's some, you know, some uh, rays of sunshine coming through the silver clouds here. Um, any thoughts on the the IPO window possibly opening up again? Um, I think that it will be opening eventually. I don't know how soon that will be. I think that the NASDAQ rallying is a good sign. I think it'll probably be a little more hesitant to go too soon just because of what you just said about the recent IPOs not performing as well as people had hoped. Uh, but I mean, to your other point, these investors, they need to get their exits. They need to free up that capital to start moving it around into other investments to get that innovation economy kind of lit again. And so I think that until the there's very clear signals that the IPO market is back, they're going to look for exits in other ways through acquisition, merger, that kind of a thing. Um, I think that we will see the IPOs start up again, probably in 2024. We've seen a significant culling and consolidation of the industry over the last year and a half. And I think that will continue for the next six to 12 months at a minimum. And that will also create, you know, the ones that stick around, the ones that are have staying power in a much more robust and validated position to IPO. So I think that will also help catalyze that market's return. So we also saw this past Thursday a a weak or a nearly failed bond auction at the Treasury, where the Treasury was selling $24 billion of 30-year Treasury bonds and saw weak demand from primary buyers for these bonds. Um, and uh, as a result, uh, yields on treasuries moved up, uh, uh, reflecting the sweet demand. They have to pay a higher yield on them in order to get people to buy the same bonds. Um, so th this is interesting. This is bad news uh, in general for the innovation economy. Um, so uh, it, ref but it reflects a number of things. Um, the U.S., a lot of the world's innovation, maybe you could say half of it happens in the U.S. And we, benef we benefited enormously from having a, you know, a sound national balance sheet, uh, a strong dollar, a dollar that doesn't inflate very much. Um, and what's happening now is that uh, uh, countries, uh, well, what's happened historically is countries have, have chosen to do their global trade transactions in US dollars and hold bank reserves in US dollars, partly because uh, the U.S. dollar had a low inflation rate relative to other fiat currencies, um, and partly because they viewed the U.S. Tr global trade networks as very friendly and solving a lot of problems for them. But in the last 
uh, two years, we've actually seen uh, many countries around the world moving away from the dollar network. They've been de-dollarizing. Uh, they might have had uh, reserve banks have 100% of their assets in dollars. That's They're now trying to put partly in euros, partly in dollars, maybe partly in, in a Chinese currency or Japanese currency. Um, and so this is reflected in the treasury, which needs to fund the U.S. debt and deficit, um, putting out, um, selling bonds, and then having buyers not interested in buying them. And then the treasury has to raise interest rates to compensate for that. So this is continued evidence of de-dollarization, which also indicates trade blocks. And this is also related actually to, um, to the war, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, because the U.S. for the first time ever kind of weaponized its dollar system to, to freeze Russia out and take assets away from Russia that were in dollars. And other countries said, you know, countries like France or China or Brazil said, well, I may not invade the Ukraine ever, but I don't want any other sovereign country to have this ability to do this. So I need to decrease my exposure to the U.S. dollar. So, so this is a continued evidence of further de-dollarization, which is generally bad news for the U.S. economy, for inflation and for the innovation economy. So any, any thoughts about that, John? Um, not really. I think that global currency and cryptocurrency and all these things that are happening right now, they're all part of a larger trend of just people trying to have more autonomy and ownership of their own assets and their own kind of value that they But I don't really have much of a deep opinion on the de-dollarization specifically. So next question is, are we going into a recession? So for a couple of years, uh, a lot of the Wall Street economists have been saying that we would go into a recession about now, about, you know, maybe fourth quarter of 2023 or so. Uh, but now that that's arrived, um, it's a much more mixed story. And I was just looking at headlines and I saw that Wall Street economists are all over the place. Some are saying they don't see a recession in our near future. Others a small number say we're in a, re a recession. It's just affecting different industries differently. Um, and others are saying that if we have a recession at all, it'll be a, a, a light recession, which is these are kind of best case scenarios. And others are saying that we would be in that recession, but we've had so much stimulus spending from the federal government. We had the Inflation Reduction Act. We had uh, we had funding uh, bills for a war in Ukraine and a war in the Middle East. Um, and that these are are. Uh, are forestalling, this is fiscal stimulus that is forestalling a, a recession. Uh, so recessions are really awful for the innovation economy because in digital health, most of our young software companies sell into big enterprises like payers, providers, pharma, um, uh, uh, employers, that sort of thing. Uh, and when during a recession, those buyers feel poor and they don't buy things that are not essential. Uh, and they, they may to postpone purchases of innovation or automation or that sort of thing. So we definitely don't want to go into a recession. But John, do you have any thoughts on are we are we in a recession? Are we about to go into a recession? I mean, I've been listening to a number of economics podcasts for what you just for the last couple of years, to your point at the beginning of that spiel. Um, and they still don't have consensus. They haven't had consensus. You have lots of people saying we need a recession. You have lots of people saying, you know, that would be the worst thing. I do think that we never really saw the fallout from the pandemic on the economy. We saw some blips here and we're seeing that fallout more right now. But I think that what we're really seeing is, you know, the Fed rates going up in, in response to all that federal stimulus creating inflation. I don't think that we have yet seen a true fallout from 
all the and supply chain interruptions that the pandemic lockdowns caused. I also think we're on the cusp of a very significant real estate crash for the commercial real estate side of things because of the, again, the pandemic effect on people moving away from cities, moving to remote work. A lot of office buildings are sitting empty right now. And, you know, the housing crisis that, you know, everybody going crazy during the pandemic too, all these things are kind of macro factors that you think we would have already seen a recession hit. But I am very concerned about what happened as other companies, you know, we work just filed for bankruptcy, but other companies as they start to default on loan payments and things like that, what impact that will have on the broader economy writ large. It could be a repeat of the 2008 mortgage collapse commercial. Great. So taking all, thank you, taking all that into account, I have a couple public views out there. The first is I think that we're going to see lift in the number of VC deals in digital health in the next two quarters. Um, and so I've been very, I've been very outspoken on this. I think the, the mainstream view is you're not going to see an increase in VC deals significant within the next four quarters. I think we will see them in the next two quarters because of um, the Fed's going to stop raising rates and the IPO windows is going to open. Uh, and so I would say that uh, in that view, I'm a little less confident in that view. And that's because of the weakness of the IPO window opening, which was a real possibility in, uh, in September and October. Um, and so we're still, we, we, you know, the, but the jury's still out on that, but I'm a little less confident in that view of a significant uptick in volume of VC deals and digital health in the next two quarters. The other view is that is uh, that we're going to see a significant acceleration of consolidation of M&A and acquisitions of young companies in digital health in the next two, you know, in two quarters. Uh, I think we will. I reiterate that one strongly. Um, and uh, I think that the conventional wisdom there also is that we're not going to see an uptick in M&A activity for four quarters or more. But I, I definitely see a lot of indications that that's coming. So that's so um, do you have any thoughts on those? So those are two predictions of mine. John, Nate, do you have any thoughts on those? Um, definitely the latter one. I think that we have already seen a lot of consolidation in space. We've either companies going out of business or acquihires or things like that. I think that the consolidation has hit the market pretty hard already. We're going to see people start to use up their dry powder, as the saying goes, as they kind of get to the end of their cash reserves. We're going to see more companies get desperate to sell, merge, you know, some to keep them viable and keep them going. Um, I don't think that this is anything new. I think that we have to wait for it. I think we're already in the middle. I think it might accelerate a little bit the two quarters. I think we really need to wait to see what happens with economic stability. We on the holiday rush to spend money, but it is what we base a lot of GDP on and a lot of financial calculations for the, the economy. So I think we do have to wait to see what happens over the holiday season to really make a lot of these assessments right now. Yeah. And, and um, so I'll just add to that mix that um, young companies often had extraordinary high valuations two years ago. Um, and so part of the reluctance uh, to do acquisitions here is that Cons bigger consolidator companies were just reluctant to buy a young company at 25 times forward revenue um, in a way that it might never be accretive for them. Uh, and so that was one step holding them back. Um, 
And in addition, young companies had uh, outstanding access to finance, so they could always get another round at a high valuation and try to become a unicorn themselves. Um, what's happened since then is that uh, valuations have come way down. Um, uh, and so uh, now uh, young companies have lost their sort of a financing privilege, you could say. It's now hard for young companies to raise money, whereas mature, profitable consolidators, they can still raise, raise money. Um, and so uh, now they have an opportunity to buy those same companies at a lower price. Uh, in addition, um, there was a, a fervent hope that although rates went up a lot, so ra rates went from 0% risk-free rate to 5.5% risk-free rate over a, few, over a couple of years, that's the fastest they've ever gone up in American history. Um, and this caused valuation multiples to, to come in uh, and, and to be compressed. Um, but there was a great hope that rates would rapidly come down again. And if that was the case, then, uh, then valuation multiples would expand again. And people who were in a fix because they invested at a high valuation uh, and saw the valuation decline um, would get out of the fix just by waiting. Uh, but since then, the Fed chairman has said that rates should remain higher for longer, signaling that, that he's not going to, does not expect to lower rates rapidly in the future. And so that means if your company is running out of cash, uh, you, you cannot count on the Fed to, to rescue you. You, you. you better do a good deal that comes along rather than uh, expect that the Fed's going to lower rates and your company's going to be worth the same that it was during the boom, uh, and you can sell at that rate. So. Um, so next I'll mention, there's an interesting trend in tech. This is a trend in B2B and B2C tech, and oftentimes digital health trends follow those trends. So it's being called the great VC resignation. So we've heard a trend in general called the great resignation across the US since COVID, um, but now we're hearing a trend called the great VC re resignation in tech. And so this is a, a phenomenon that um, you know people, um, got a chance to have VC jobs. VC firms expanded employment at the firm dramatically. People got a chance to put some money to work. They may have put it to work all in companies with valuations at over 25 times forward revenue. Um, now they're looking, everything's upside down. Their, their fund has a troubled future um, and they're leaving VC jobs, which in the past, um, VC didn't employ a lot of people and people seldom ever left a VC job. And so people are leaving and often a favored way to leave a VC job is that you usually have friends and connections in your portfolio companies. And so you might move into a portfolio company in a, a, a role involving sales or operations or finance, something like that. And so that's happening in tech. And so the question is, I think we're gonna see some of that happen in digital health. I think, I think funds will raise smaller funds and uh, junior partners at at fund at uh, funds will will say there's no I don't see the path for me to get a senior slot, and they don't want to sit out for years, and they, and they don't have a and their track record the timing the, the way the time they got into deals at the top indicates that they're not going to have a great track record uh, to get into a different fund, so I, I think we're going to see VCs moving on. So John, any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I, I think that that's a pretty good assessment. I think we saw massive kind of growth of the VC space, just like the growth of the hedge fund space in the last few decades. But I think that this recent economic situation, macro factors that are affecting a lot of uncertainty around investment vehicles in general, is playing out exactly as you're saying. People, they're just 
because there's not as much need because there's not as much money coming into the VC firms. And I think that's a bad thing. I think that we have as a society and industry become over on VC money, which sometimes skews the actual priorities for organizations as they need to get higher valuations every round. They need to continue to show certain milestones that are more tied to revenue, you know, maybe other factors that are important to the success of the company long term. Um, you know, in general, I think that certain things that are just inherently not working well with to digital innovation as we rely on outside investment to drive growth. I'm not saying VC is a bad thing. It definitely has a place. It's definitely a huge for innovation and plays a very significant and important role. But I think we have become overly reliant on it as opposed to just coming up with good business models that can get you revenue earlier and not have you rely on outside money as quick as you know as much. Great, thanks. Um, and by the way, I I'm noticing some popping and some fading in and out sounds. Uh, it seems like it's coming from from your microphone. Um, and so is, is there a way you can try swapping and we'll, we'll just, we'll see if, uh, you know, if that, if that works uh, to try swapping uh, a, a microphone there. Um, I don't know if our audience had, yeah. had the same problem. Um, uh, so are, How's this? I just switched to the, yeah, I just switched. That, that's great. That seems better. I, I don't hear the popping okay. and fading sound anymore. So the, yeah, the next section. Yeah, I'm not sold on my AirPods, honestly. <laughs> um, so the, the next section is uh, uh, industry reports. So here, if we if we see industry reports uh, that have come out, we call it to the attention of our audience, and um, and and uh, you know try to summarize for our audience what's in the report. So CDI Insights has come out with their State of Digital Health report for Q3, um, and there the, the the bottom line is that the amount of funding and the number of deals of funding in Q3 was uh, lower than even expected. So I think people thought that it was low and it was going to stay at the same low level. But uh, CBI Insights report is that it's fallen even further. So their report was that total funding global for Q3 in digital health VC investments was $3 billion. And this fell 14% from the prior quarter. So that, that's unexpected. Um, and it's now at its lowest level since 2016. 2016 was pre-boom. Uh, people didn't know uh, what to expect from digital health, didn't think it would be so big a sector as it became. Um, and so now, interestingly, uh, uh, other sectors like B2B and B2C in Q3 grew 11%. So while B2B and B2C are growing their venture funding 11%, digital health is seeing venture funding fall 14%. So that's unexpected against trend. I would not have expected that. Um, and uh, so the number of deals from, from quarter to quarter is actually down 33%. So the decline of 14%, that's dollar value. And the number of deals is down 33% from the prior quarter, which was a disappointing quarter. So I was surprised at how uh, things have really declined even further. I would have thought that we were at a low and staying at the same low. Instead, um, we've seen a real decline. So. A slight increase in the number of mega rounds. They defined a mega round as over $100 million. So I think what we're seeing with mega rounds there, uh, I looked at some of the deals they named, and I think what we're seeing is, is VC firms doubling down on safe bets. So this is a flight to safety and quality that a venture fund 
can give an extra big round to one of their favorite larger, mature, possibly uh, cash flow positive portfolio companies um, and put cash to work that way and not have to make six, six smaller deals in riskier companies. Um, so the, the number of mega deals is up slightly. Um, the hot categories the last quarter were care delivery, navigation tech, monitoring, imaging, diagnostic tech. Those were the in categories. One of the out categories was digital therapeutics and wellness tech. So digital therapeutics has been suffering a real sort of nadir of investor interest because pair therapeutics went out of business and Achille announced it was exiting the prescription sales channel and focusing on the direct to consumer sales channel. Um, so uh, I think that that was predictable that we'd see that it's out of favor in Q3. Um, so I think one of the more interesting things here is that a a category that's in favor is care delivery. So if I understand this correctly from CV Insights, care delivery is care. Care delivery is, is it may be tech enabled um, care, but it's care. Uh, and it's not selling software, it's selling care. So for example, Teladoc sells visits, not software. And One Medical sells visits, not software. Um, and so uh, that's a, a, a growing trend in uh, venture investment is in digital health is to invest in care, technology enabled care, but care, new care delivery models, hybrid care, um, tech enabled services. Uh, and uh, so these are companies that often um, they, uh, uh, the, the bet here is that there's a lot of money at stake and kind of like the white coats who have been running it are terrible at running businesses and don't know how to buy technology or use technology or implement technology. Um, and so it's, it's easier to get the black turtlenecks in there uh, starting care delivery companies uh, and, uh, and and telling the white coats what to do um, in that. And that in doing this, you'll create a new care delivery company that outcompetes uh, the old care delivery companies. So, so like one medical, um, you know, gave birth to a nationwide cutting edge medical practice that was very technologically enabled. Um, and uh, you could not expect incumbents to, to build that. That's something that really took an outsider, uh, you know, a, a technologist and an entrepreneur uh, to, with, with venture dollars to build that. You would not have seen a doctor-led, traditional doctor-led practice in New York State go and build a nationwide practice. Instead, it had to be coming out of venture-backed you know, Silicon Valley company. So anyway, um, I don't know if you saw that report before, John, but uh, any thoughts on that? I didn't see the report, but if you look at the big acquisitions that have happened over the last year or two, I mean, Optum's been gobbling up care providing, you know, technology enabled care providers, CVS, got Oak Street. Um, it definitely seems like there's a clear exit path with some of these disruptors coming in. So I think that that might be part of what's contributing to VC interest in that space. Also, to your point, the incumbents aren't going to be as nimble and flexible to do new innovation. They may want to acquire one of these organizations to help them then roll that out across their organization once they are ready to make that shift. But, you know, they're not going to be the ones that are going to be doing all of the experiments. So they can look at some of these other care provider models that are coming out that are technology enabled and then think about whether or not they want to try to apply that to their network of providers. Uh, so I think that it makes a lot of sense from an investment perspective. There's a lot of opportunity there for new innovation, and there's a lot of potential exits 
either to the incumbent care provider organizations or to the disruptors like Amazon and CVS. Yeah, thanks. So Marty comments, uh, care delivery is less sexy than pure tech and carries higher cost structures, but potentially better results. Yeah, interesting. Thanks. In fact, there's kind of a an alliance of a dozen or so VCs who are saying that uh, the, the classic software investment model just doesn't work in healthcare for a number of reasons. And so VCs should be investing in services. Now, the issue is, is that, um, is that with a software company, you have spent a lot of money up front to build a software product that scales and then employ a sales force. And then the promise is that you'll sell a high, you'll, you'll rapidly scale a high margin product into the future. And that, that'll give you a huge return to the, all the money you invested to build that. That's the promise of software. The promise of services and care is, is very different. It is that you could potentially start getting revenue and make money the year you start, you don't have to build for five years before selling, um, but you, you could get uh, revenue from uh, from commercial payers, from from Medicare um, immediately uh, for your services company. Um, but then when you build a business, it it's a services business. It's not going to be high margin. It's going to scale more slowly. Um, and yeah. then uh, so but a lot of VCs in in B2B and B2C demand the software model. Um, but in digital health, some VCs are saying that we should accept the, the more of the services model. Yeah, I think that um, in your what you were just saying about the CB Insights report, the growing number of mega rounds reflects what Marty was just saying. There is a greater upfront cost to develop the staffing that can actually apply, you know, deliver the care. So I think that that is reflected in those numbers that you see because the deal, the actual sheer number of deals is down, but you're seeing bigger deals happen. And so that does reflect there. And for our audience, did you see any, uh, any industry reports in the last week or two that you want us to try to speak to? Um, and John, any other reports that you saw? Yeah. So I put a few into our show notes. Uh, one of them was a presentation that I actually saw at health a couple weeks ago which is where we last saw each other in person. Um, and Novalon and Harvard did a paper together looking at Medicare fee-for-service versus Medicare Advantage and looking at normalizing the patient population before they choose which Medicare option they're going to go with and then seeing what the differences are in terms of outcomes and costs You know, one year, two years, three years down the road. I think they only did it for two years at this point. But basically what they showed is that by, I think, six quarters is when you really start to see the difference in cost of care and care services. So I thought that was a really interesting series of white papers that Innovalon is producing, just looking at all claims databases. Um, I would definitely, you know, if anybody's interested in that, and it ties into our conversation today with how much Medicare Advantage has taken over the Medicare market, um, it's just on the Innovalon site. You can just search for Innovalon Harvard and it'll show up. Um, we, Chillmark Research, recently did a report on real-world data, and we were talking specifically about the market trends for real-world data plays. And we forecast that that market, and I think there's a lot of opportunity here for growth. Uh, we're just getting to the point where we have all this clinical data actually available for mining for any number of use cases. 
And we projected out that by 2030, we would see that market be around uh, 12, around $13.5 billion um, from the roughly 4.3 that it is today. So that's a forecasted CAGR of 14.6% year over year. Um, you can see there being you know, more interest from the FDA in real world evidence. And they're actually putting out some guidelines around how to submit for new indications on already you know, approved drugs using real world evidence. Uh, you see a lot of pharma companies trying to address their equity problems by getting access. I don't know how many people have on the call have seen this, but there's been a big issue recently, a lot of news around how most clinical trials don't actually represent the general population to any real degree. Um, between exclusion criteria as well as just access to AMCs, you don't get a truly representative population of the country or you know the potential people taking that medication in the clinical trial. And so I think that there's going to be more pressure on pharma and life science companies to address that equity issue so that they do see whether or not there are any other potential confounding factors with their uh, success of their medication to treat the indication. And so we'll see more pharma companies trying to address the equity piece by leveraging these real world data um, solutions that are actually bringing in clinical data as opposed to just payer data. Historically, RWD has largely been payer and claims. So this is getting a lot more robust. I had a call with a company called Evidation the other day, and they're actually addressing the patient report outcome side of things and trying to get a really standardized way of getting PROs into a real world data set that pharma companies can use. Uh, Citizen, which was acquired by Invitae a year or two ago, um, they're doing something more around rare diseases that's getting patients to give consent, give them consent to go out and collect all their medical records, and then they get you know, notified if their normalized record fits with any of the clinical trials that fit their rare disease. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there. And, you know, I've just got to give the little plug for us doing this research. Um, Great, thank you. And, um, any thoughts on that? Um, From your end? So, yeah, thank you. Um, uh, so uh, I'll definitely check out, um, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the, the research that you that you mentioned. So thanks. Um, yeah. So then uh, now we, we we've been moving a little slowly. So for the next couple sections, let's I'll, I'm going to cut back what I was going to cover uh, just so we can get to the main topic. Uh, but so uh, news news of the week. So I would say my two news stories of the week. There's Uplift Health um, has acquired a. We're moving a little slowly. So for the next couple sections, let's I'll, I'm going to cut back what I was going to cover uh, just so we can get to the main topic. Uh, but so uh, news, news of the week. So I would say my two news stories of the week, there's Uplift Health um, has acquired a women-focused digital psychiatry telemed platform called Minded, um, and which increases its number of products and expands it to five states. Um, so this is interesting because uh, it's an acquisition in the space. And so I, I think, we're, I think this, this sort of feeds into that trend we're talking about of acquisitions. This is a, you know, relatively small company acquiring another relatively small company. You wouldn't usually think of Uplift Health as a consolidator, um, but I think we're going to see as the valuations of young small companies have come down, you're gonna see more of these kinds of acquisitions. Um, an acquisition can be a way to cut burn because you merge two companies that sell into the same, uh, the same budget. 
uh, and then you cut the, the number of employees for it, gives it a path to be uh, cash flow positive, um, or the young small company is now available at a lower price. So that, that's my acquisition of the week. Uh, and then I'll also mention um, that uh, Boston-based Elucid, uh, which offers AI-enabled imaging analysis for cardio diseases, um, announced it's raised $80 million, um, in, uh, in, a, in Series B funding led by Elevage Medical Technologies, uh, which is a, uh, a funding company, sort of like a venture fund, um, and it is in AI computer vision. So um, here, uh, I think that the message here is, is that uh, AI computer vision proven applications in health, of AI in healthcare is very hot right now. So the, those companies have an easier ability uh, to raise money. So, uh, but in general, this is still a time of few fundraising announcements, and there's typically more layoffs and more wind downs than fundraises in the news. Um, so, John, do you have any, any uh, news stories you wanted to bring to our audience? Um, on terms of the funding side of things, I mean, I don't know if you've talked about Tomo Bravo acquiring NextGen back in September on one of your other podcasts, but I thought that was an interesting data point for just the where this market is headed, you know, you got Cerner acquired by Oracle. Uh, Epic is really the only standalone still left at this point. That's a major one. ECW, I guess, and Meditech are still out there. Um, and I don't want to downplay their presence, but, you know, as far as the big ambulatory hospital EMRs go, it's, it's, the markets winnowed down a lot. Um, I'm very curious to know what Doma Bravo's bigger strategy is there because they aren't super deep in healthcare. I mean, they've definitely got some experience, but they aren't known for necessarily being in the healthcare space. And then you also had in the show notes, and I've called this out, uh, Vita Health recently raised uh, $28.5 million, And they're a chronic condition care platform that seeks to address the behavioral health as well as the physical health of their patients. So they're trying to do a fully comprehensive kind of holistic virtual care platform, which you don't see enough of, in my opinion. I think that integrated care is a trend that we're starting to see in actual medical practice, but you don't really see that transition over to the IT side yet. But I think that that's going to be very important long-term for this shift to value-based care, actually having more integrated care experts that can look at the whole patient as opposed to just a single disease condition at a time. That, that's great. Thanks, Yeah, And, and um, Vita Health had a great syndicate behind it. So they had Ally Bridge, Canvas Ventures, General Atlantic. So that's something, you know, where we haven't seen that that often. Uh, so some, sometimes you have an, an, a, a company announces that funding in this difficult environment and they have an unusual syndicate behind them. They have a corporate venture fund that usually doesn't lead, is the lead and sole investor. They have, you know, a uh, an angel comes in. Uh, for a, a Series A round and takes a Series A round. And so it's good to see, and, and that gets back to the idea that there's too much uncertainty in the market and lead investors aren't leading. Well, Vita Health is an outstanding company and they have an outstanding syndicate behind them. So this is an example of those lead investors getting off the bleachers, jumping in the pool with the CEOs and swimming around finally and lead investors leading. So that's encouraging to see. And we'll know that this impasse has come to an end when we see more fundraise deals, all of them with outstanding syndicates behind them. So, um, well, that's great. And then, um, so conferences, here's where we call out important conferences that are coming up for all digital health executives or for some. Uh, and uh, so I'm gonna call out, you know, it's, it's mid-November and I'm gonna, and we've got Thanksgiving and Christmas coming up. And so I'm gonna call out the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference, second week of January in San Francisco. 
Um, so a lot of uh, digital health executives don't quite understand this conference. This is an investor conference. Um, and uh, typically digital health companies don't attend the conference. They go and hang out in Union Square <laughs> um, and everybody else is going to this conference. Who, who's everybody else? So a lot of CEOs of young and mature companies in digital health who are raising money are going and nearly all VCs are going. Um, uh, and uh, then there's also public company consolidators are, are going uh, and then public investors like BlackRock and Fidelity are going. That's who goes to this conference. Uh, and so uh, and so you can go and you can you can write to the VCs you're interested in and say, let's meet at JP Morgan. And many of them are in meeting mode. They'll be there even if they're from Chicago or Boston or New York. They'll be there um, and they'll say, yes, let's meet. And they're trying to fill up their day with eight or more meetings per day uh, at this conference. And then they go to parties at night. Um, uh, and so that, that's what the conference is. It's not sitting around the Weston St. Francis Hotel in Union Square and watching presentations. Um, a second thing that happens here is many of the consolidators are there. And at consolidators, here's who goes. The CEO, the CFO, the head of corp dev, and the head of investor relations go. But not heads of product or general managers of divisions, they typically don't go. And that's who might buy your software products. But if you think you can get the attention of a CEO or a head of corp dev who might buy your company from these, they may go. Um, uh, uh, and so that's who goes to JP Morgan. Uh, and so people, you don't buy a ticket or get invited. You, you buy an airplane ticket and a hotel room, and then you hang out in cafes and hotel lobbies in Union Square and meet Did we just lose him? Okay. Um, I guess you guys can ask me some questions in the meantime. <laughs> and Marty actually already did this, but if anybody wants to reach out to me on LinkedIn, here's my LinkedIn page. I share articles, share my writing on the industry there. So if anybody wants to follow along how I cover the health IT space. Okay. Yeah, I guess I can talk, jump into the latest trends on, in VVC. Um, I think the biggest, most obvious one is that Medicare Advantage is now more than 50% of Medicare uh, membership. So that is creating a massive shift in terms of um, just the economics of value-based care. A lot of people always thought that we needed to get to a certain inflection point for value-based care to really take off and really be taken seriously by the actual provider side. When VBC first started becoming a buzzword and thrown around, um, my father was of a mind that it needed to be at least 30% of total finance, total healthcare economics for people to really get motivated to make that transition. You know, a lot of AMCs, a lot of more entrenched interests just didn't really see the need to because it was going to be too disruptive to their bottom line. All right, Steve's back. <laughs> I was just jumping yeah. in briefly into the value-based care side of things. Yeah, th thank you. So, um, so I was just saying now is the time to invite people to meet at J.P. Morgan. Was my uh, John? Any conferences that you think are important for all or subsector of digital health companies to go to? 
Yeah, so I just went to health and I had a really good time there. I was really impressed by the level of diversity. I'm still writing up my show notes. Um, so I'm very curious. I have show notes. Um, so I'm very curious. I haven't been to Vibe before, but seeing what health has become since they kind of initially got going, I'm very curious to see how Vibe is different. I haven't been to Vibe before, but seeing what health has become since they kind of initially got going. I'm very curious to see how Vibe is different. And I definitely, you know, after going to HIMSS last year and talking to everybody that had been to Vibe a couple weeks before HIMSS, it sounded like it was a lot of really good, high quality networking. They apparently bring out a lot of senior executive level folks. Um, again, you're not necessarily getting the buyers of solutions represented as much as, you know, an innovator might want to see a developer of solutions as, you know, an innovator might want to see, a developer of solutions might want to see, but you're still building really good network. You're still making really good relationships and connections on site. Um, I'm going to be going to the Health Analytics Summit in uh, Salt Lake City that Health Catalyst hosts. I'm looking forward to that, seeing what the, what's new with them. You know, it typically has a pretty population health as well as operational analytics focus. So I'm curious to see what's new with them. It is sponsored by Health Catalyst and put on by them. So it'll be a little bit focused on kind of their solutions. Um, but it's always a good time. And I don't know what Salt Lake City is like in February. It's usually in the, in the fall, but it's a fun city to visit. Um, yeah, five is definitely the big one, though, I think, for a lot of people. And I'm curious to see what goes on with HIMSS this year, how it's different under the new ownership. Uh, in case anybody hadn't already heard, an uh, international conference company called Integra bought out the HIMSS conference a few months back. And HIMSS has kind of been floundering since Chime branched off from them. So I'm definitely curious to see. And HIMSS has kind of been floundering since Chime branched off from them. So I'm definitely curious to see how this might end up either salvaging or making that brand worse. We'll see. Thanks. So before we start the second half of our show, the last bit is personal notices. So um, this is so my personal notices are that um, for Boston area members, I'm doing the next Digital Health Drinks Night is November 30th from 530 to 830. Um, and it's at a, a building called the Millenn it's at a, a building called the Millennium Building in downtown Boston. Uh, you can visit my Eventbrite page, stephenmordell.eventbrite.com uh, to find the event November 30th. Uh, and the theme for that event is Age Tech. Um, Enium building in downtown Boston. Uh, you can visit my Eventbrite page, stephenmordell.eventbrite.com uh, to find the event November 30th. Uh, and the theme for that event is Age Tech. Um, and then also I'll be at the JP Morgan conference in San Francisco, uh, second week of January. If if you're based in San Francisco or if you're going, would love to, to meet up there. Um, John, any, any personal notices? Yeah, so if anybody is in the Austin area, um, I'll drop a link in here. I'm going to be on one of the panels at the um, annual CXO forum that they're hosting on December 5th. So it'd be great to see you there if you are in the area. Uh, and then I'm also convening a, a new project that takes Chillmark and our perspective on the market and then brings in a couple of other of my colleagues. So Maestro Strategies which is Pam Arlotto and Susan Irby, uh, Horta Healthcare, which is Nicopolos, and Kingfisher Advising, which is Curtis Peterson. Um, we're all coming together around this concept of developing a framework that C-suites can use to 
more effectively measure and evaluate the impact that they're trying to get and actually getting from their health IT deployments. So we're calling this the Health Impact Project. We are starting, you know, we've been writing up our manifesto. We'll be starting to release that in a series of uh, drips starting just after Thanksgiving. So we'll have a podcast series going with that. I've got some great speakers lined up. I just did my podcast series going with that. I've got some great speakers lined up. I just did my first podcast episode with John Glazer earlier today. I've got one that I'm scheduling with Sachin Jain, Deepak uh, Sadagopan, uh, Mickey Tripathi. So it's going to be a really good series of conversations that I'm um, hoping to share with the community. That, that, that's great. Um... So now moving on to our main topic, our value-based future is approaching quickly. So um, why don't you just start with what is value-based care? How does it differ from fee-for-service? Uh, so value-based care is you know, often referred to as capitation. Basically, you take a panel of patients that is being paid for by a pay or by you know, some kind of insurance company, and you risk stratify those patients, assign a certain value to how much their care should cost, and then you give a lump sum contracted ahead of time to the provider to take care of that patient population. So that's pretty much what it is at its core. It's all about... Um, incentivizing the provider organization or the provider that's contracted to provider organization or the provider that's contracted to keep the costs under that amount so that they get to pocket some of that difference. They get to pocket some of that savings. So it's a way to try to contain the ever-growing costs of care in this country that have really gotten astronomically out of control. Interesting. And I'll, I'll mention that this is the the shift from fee for value, I'm sorry, from fee for service, which is the system we've largely had since World War II and even before World War II, to fee for value. This is the biggest healthcare reform of our lifetimes. There's unlikely to be this is the biggest healthcare reform of our lifetimes. There's unlikely to be another one bigger in the future, as far as as we can see. Um, and it, it came about through Obamacare in 2009. Um, and what's interesting is that. The old fee-for-service system, which I've heard described as being still about 85% of healthcare spend, although I'd love to get your view on that, uh, John, um, the old fee-for-service system doesn't like technology and is terrible at buying technology and using technology. What it wants to do is it wants to employ expensive people and build them out at the top of their uh, license. That's what fee-for-service would like to do. It doesn't want to buy technology. The best example of this is how providers never wanted to buy EMRs um, uh, and had to be forced to buy EMRs by the federal government. Um, so now fee for value um, loves technology. Fee for value theoretically wants to fire everybody in healthcare and replace them with software. Um, so the move, that, that's an exaggeration, but the move from fee, uh, from fee for service to fee for value uh, is an enormous reform. And it, it, it clears out people who don't want to buy technology and it replaces them with people who want to replace everything with technology. Um, and you have different uh, products, different software products built and sold to fee-for-value vendors and ultimately different companies building that fee-for-value software um, selling into providers and the system. And so uh, a, a big change. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think everyone is surprised that the reform has been so slow. That's actually part of the topic of today's call, which is that if you'd ask people back in 2009, you know, how, would we 
we've, we've moved about one point of spend per year. If you ask people back in 2009, it's, it's 2023, how much of spend has shifted to fee for value, people would have thought all of it would have shifted by now to fee for value. Instead, we debate how much has shifted, but it's less than half probably. Um, so anyway, so that, that's a little bit of a, a background on that. Um, but uh, so um, uh, how, how does this change happen, this change from fee for service to fee for value? Uh, how, how does that happen across the healthcare delivery system? Slowly. It happens by trying to find some kind of a consensus around what outcomes matter so that you can hold people actually accountable to maintaining a certain degree of quality of care. Obviously, you can just cut services slash, you know, slash and burn services to save money. That's one thing you can do, but that wouldn't obviously be very beneficial to the patient. It might be beneficial to the person writing the checks or, you know, receiving those checks. Um, so coming up with a consistent set of outcomes measures and quality metrics that really matter to both the, the patient slash member as well as to the care providers themselves is a big part of that transition. Um, as you mentioned, technology is also a big piece of that. You literally cannot do value-based care without technology. You need to have those analytics and those insights to be able to get to understanding your patient population. So when you go into your contract negotiations with the payer or with the provider, depending on which side of the stakeholder game you're on, you actually know what you are, what to expect from that patient population and know how to effectively predict out what your demands on the services will actually be. Um, utilization management is a massive piece of this, and that all kind of comes back around to you know the care management piece, the moving care to less expensive parts of the care system. So trying to keep people out of the ED is a big one. Readmissions is a big one. Obviously, you know, 90 day readmits was one of the first penalties that came about as we started looking at um, the transition to value based care. Uh, Basically, just managing chronic conditions a lot better is a big part of the switch to value-based care. You need to get change management, though. I mean, I guess that's what it all comes down to at its core is people are used to treating sick people when they come in for a specific incidence. Doctors are not historically trained in preventive care and preventive medicine. Sure, it would be great if they were, but that's not what they're trained for for the most part. So specialists, they're trained in whatever their specialty is in treating that condition when it presents itself, not preventing the condition. And so we do need to change the mindset. We need to change the education system. We need to change a lot of things to actually fully deliver on value-based care because it really does shift the needle in terms of going from a sick care system, as a lot of people like to make the analogy, we're a sick care system, to an actual healthcare system. Uh, you have to take into account the socio-demographic aspect of care delivery. You have to look at your communities and what the biggest risk factors are in those specific communities and how you can have community outreach programs that can address, you know, if it's a high diabetes population, you do some outreach efforts to educate people about managing their diabetes at a public health level. Um, there's just a lot of factors in here, and it's really scary to a lot of care organizations because they're already struggling right now with their bottom line. Finances have not rebounded very well since the pandemic, and it's stressful trying to switch your economic model when you're used to operating on a fee-for-volume kind of process. You can just keep boosting your number of patients coming through your doors to get more of that money. That said, a lot of people did see the people under value-based contracts during the pandemic doing better because they had already been paid. They'd already received the, the money for that patient population. And so they didn't have to rely on elective surgeries. They didn't have to rely on some of those um, services that got called off or slowed down during the lockdowns. 
And so that has also been a big driver in this shift is people just seeing that, you know, when something unexpected happens, you can't actually rely on the traditional model and doing a, a value-based model is actually much more helpful. I don't know if that directly answered your question, if that's what you're going for, but. That's great. And I'll, I'll tell you two interesting stories I've heard from the field about the shift to value-based care. Uh, so, um, and so in one of them, you had a medical practice in Florida uh, and um, in this practice, you know, patients would call in to uh, schedule appointments, to ask questions, that sort of thing. And at this medical practice, um, the staff stopped answering the phone at 4.55 p.m. every day. And it just, it, 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 they just didn't pick up the phone. The phone would ring. It wouldn't go into voicemail. It's not very customer friendly. Um, and the reason was that, uh, uh, that they, they charged on a fee-for-service basis. And so they would just wait for that person to call back the next day, and then they would book the appointment. Um, and if the person had, let's say, had an emergency, well, they shouldn't be calling their medical practice after 5 p.m. anyway. They should go to the emergency room. Um, but uh, it, it didn't matter to the practice. Um, and then the practice switched to an ACO, an accountable care organization, which is a form of, of um, value-based care. Uh, and uh, suddenly uh, they were on the hook if that patient went and got care at urgent care or went and got care uh, at in the emergency room. They would actually, that would come out of their pocket if they, if they were, they got a fixed amount of money for this patient and they wanted that patient to be cared for by them. They saw themselves as low cost. They didn't want that patient to walk into an urgent care or emergency room. And so all of a sudden they changed to having, you know, someone uh, to have, uh, having an, a call service uh, that would help people address their issue um, and make sure they didn't show up, go to urgent care. Uh, so that, that's one example of a difference. Uh, another difference was that uh, people would, uh, under fee-for-service, uh, engaged patients would do things like buy a clinical-grade blood pressure monitor and take their blood pressure um, or, uh, you know, uh, other home readings, and they would go to their doctor and they would say, you know, here's some of some blood pressure readings I had. And the doctor would say, don't tell me, I don't want to know. Um, uh, and the doctor, under fee-for-service, the doctor can't bill for blood pressure readings you took yourself. Um, uh, and uh, so, um, uh, and then they, they didn't use the data. They didn't want the data. They didn't use the data. They could actually trigger liability on their part if they received the data. So they didn't want it. Um, and under the... But they, what they did want is for the patient to drive in, park, pay for parking, sit in the waiting room, go to the exam room, and then have a nurse uh, take their blood pressure. That's, that's what they wanted, and see the doctor, and they could bill for that. Um, and so uh, under fee-for-value, suddenly um, doctors want to take care of the whole patient, but they don't necessarily want the patient to come in. They don't need the patient to come in. So they may literally buy a clinical grade blood pressure monitor and mail it and gift it to the, to the patient and say, take your own blood pressure and it will automatically, this is tied into our EMR, it'll automatically report um, your value in uh, and this will ensure you have better care. Uh, uh, so the way you practice medicine and use technology is completely different uh, between uh, the two different modes. Um, and, uh, uh, and I think the way that value-based care progresses is that payers believe it's in their interest to switch to value-based care. So CMS wants to, some commercial payers want to, 
but they can't force something on providers that providers won't accept. Because if, if you cover a million lives in the greater Boston area and you're responsible for, uh, for having a physician network, a provider network that's convenient and, and realistic to that population, um, you can't treat that provider network badly. You can't give them ultimatums. So uh, payers would shift to more value-based contracts to certain parts of the population. Uh, and so as these contracts renew, uh, the new contract would come up and it would be partially fee for value or fully fee for value. So these, these payers are, are you know, CMS and Medicare, uh, the veterans service, uh, in, in, uh, carriers and employers. Um, these are the payers uh, and they would wanna switch to value-based care and they would negotiate with providers um, and uh, the, 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 the contracts would look more and more like capitated contracts um, and they would have incentives in them and, and they, they would have weak and strong incentives in them. And the doctors and providers didn't like the strong, strong incentives. They liked kind of the weak incentives. And so that's, there's been a battle over what incentives to include. So for example, um, if you have a profit sharing incentive, which is that if, if, there's an, a, an extra profit margin in there with your care of patients and the provider gets to keep part of that. That's a weak incentive and that's in a lot of contracts and that doesn't really change provider behavior very much, it turns out. But then there's, then there's strong incentives. Strong incentives are things like if there's a readmission to a hospital within 30 days, then the hospital eats 100% of that cost. That's a strong incentive. That does change provider behavior uh, and providers hate that. Uh, but it, but over time, more and more of these, the contracts are looking more like capitated contracts and more of the strong incentives are in there that causing providers to start to have to change their behavior. Um, yeah. So the I'm AMA, so the AMA recently um, issued a new report looking at some uh, survey results, you know, from 2020 fiscal year and it's 2022 rather. And it showed that 58, roughly 58% of the respondents, I think it was over 3000 respondents were in some kind of an ACO arrangement. Like their practice was partnered with some type of an ACO. So, you know, AMA represents specialists and family care practice and things like that. So when you're seeing roughly 60% of providers now working with at least one ACO, that's really telling you that capitation is here. It's reached an inflection point where it's over half of people are now doing it. And it's pretty, I mean, it's just going to keep going at this point. You know, we've reached that point that it won't stop. It's a matter of figuring out what does it mean to provide quality care? How do we maintain the excellence of care um, as we try to cut costs? And what do you actually do as a care organization to prevent serious uh, instances of care need? So is that getting into the home or is it providing, to your point, the blood pressure cuffs for people? Uh, one of my friends is a founder of Podometrics from back when I did Rock Health. And they have this mat that you stand on to prevent diabetic amputations related to foot infections. Um, you know, these little things that you can do that aren't cheap necessarily from a consumer standpoint, but in a healthcare context, they are very cheap interventions to prevent significantly higher costs of care. Um, it's exciting times, I think. I think that it's a really, we've gotten to the point where we don't need to prove that the model can work. It's just, we need to prove how to keep it working and how, what is the best arrangement for it to continue working. And getting back to what I was just saying before, the outcomes measures and the quality metrics, that's gonna be a big piece of that. And that's also where the most contention kind of lies. 
Thanks. And we have a question from our audience, from Jean-Luc. Uh, so, so I'm hearing from chief medical officers with whom I've spoken that many of the startups built on value-based premises are having difficulty demonstrating their solutions improve quality and or lower costs. Can you both comment on that observation? So, yeah, I think, you know, that, that so, uh, there have been many young digital health companies started with a premise of selling into this shift to value-based care uh, because it's friendlier to technology. It represents a major disruption uh, that you would expect the incumbents can't build products well in this new area, but startups could. It's a great opportunity. So the, the first thing I think that's happened is that the shift to value-based care has been a lot slower than people expected or wanted. That's the first issue. The second issue is, uh, and there's many issues actually with this, but these are three that I'll, the three that I can think of off the top of my head. So uh, a second issue is that um, uh, uh, it, this is kind of a case of having to bring on a second system without getting rid of the first system. So, uh, so medical practices and hospitals that are buying new systems that are attuned to value-based care, they don't get 